0: Hi everyone, I'm Ben.
1: And I'm Yeo. Welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. Today, we're receiving Charles Cooper, managing partner in Vietnam at Allens, a law firm. We discussed about approval of the long-awaited Vietnam's Power Development Plan 8, or PDP-8. We We're going to talk about the key takeaways from the PDP-8, next steps, and discuss the overall development of renewable energy in Vietnam.
0: As always, grateful if you take the time to rate and comment on the show. It helps listeners to find us. Thanks and on with the show.
1: Hi Giles, welcome to Sustainable Energy Asia podcast. You have an extensive experience in Vietnam. I think it's more than 20 years, right? So what brought you to the country and why you decided to settle in Vietnam?
2: Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to join you here today. Indeed, I have lived and worked in Vietnam for nearly 23 years. It's been a fascinating ride. I first came here pretty much by accident. In fact, I'm a New Zealand lawyer. I had a job lined up in London and I stopped here on the way to visit a very dear old friend of mine who was working here and before too long, I had a job offer because there was a need for people to to get involved in a power project. In fact, Vietnam's first build, operate, transfer thermal power project, their free project. So I was brought on at Baker McKenzie uh, back in the 1999 to support on that project. And uh, things just developed from there. I never took the flight to England and continued to work in Vietnam. And I've been at three firms in that time. I joined Allen two years ago. And I'm the managing partner of the Hanoi office of Allens. And we focus mainly on infrastructure matters at of this
0: office. We are really excited to be with you and to speak about the approval of the pdp 8 When I started working on Vietnam, everyone was already saying the PDP-8 will be published in a couple of months. And now the publication is something I think really exciting for a lot of people. Vietnam is a really interesting country in Southeast Asia. It has... The highest growth expectation for the coming years above 6%, which means that the power demand will actually also grow with this trend. It's a single-buyer market with local utility. And unfortunately, right now, it's still a coal-centric grid that is in Vietnam. But Vietnam has really a compelling story because they have added uh, between 2019 and 2021, 23 gigawatt of renewables, a bit less than 20 gigawatt was solar. And that was really on the back of the feed-in tariff for solar and wind, which have ended in 2020 and 2021. So oh, the PDP8 really puts the development back on track because after the end of the feed in tariff for the developer, it was really difficult to see what's coming next. And we start to see a way to move forward with the publication and the approval of the PDP8. But I think as a start, can you just introduce what are the power development plan in Vietnam and why there is so much excitement about the publication of the PDP8 and the approval?
2: Yes, certainly. Power development master plan is part of a system of uh, sectoral master plans that the government sets. There are master plans for all sorts of sectors like ports, roads, airports, power, et cetera, et cetera. And the at once, both a kind of historical hangover from Communist Party central planning policies, but also still a contemporary means of planning as the development of sectors across the country. Historically, National Master plans were very rigid documents where it was set out exactly what would be produced, what would be built in any given period. They typically are each 10-year master plans and they have a vision that looks ahead for another 15 or so years. So I say they're still contemporary because current law still mandates that developments, whatever sort of projects they are, and in this case, the power sector, cannot be developed, cannot happen unless they are consistent with the master plan. And historically, as I mentioned, being consistent was very specific. They had to be specific projects included in a master plan before they could be developed. It is now a little bit more flexible, as I'll get into in a minute. But fundamentally, without a power master plan, no power projects can proceed. On a sort of micro level, very necessary guiding policy document. On a bigger level, of course, there's much more nuance to it because they set the direction for how the government is going to run the power sector and in particularly, of course, how it is going to decarbonize the existing coal-centric system that you mentioned. So there's a lot of thought and a lot of discussion and argument goes into what is an appropriate mix that's going to be suitable for the country, it's going to be financeable, it's going to be able to be developed and built and meet the needs of the country 10 years ahead. And as you mentioned, we have been waiting for quite a while for this particular master plan. PDP-8 should have been issued in a perfect world in 2020 to cover the period from 2021 to the end of 2030. And it was only finally approved at the end of May after approximately 12 drafts or so. That sort of, the delay on that reflects a couple of important points. Number one, that there was a lot of hard work being done and some disagreement about what was the appropriate mix to put in PDP-8 and for the, looking ahead to the future. And it also reflects the fact that there was such rapid growth in the renewable energy capacity here in Vietnam leading up to 2020. There was a lot more than was actually planned in the previous Power Development Master Plan 7. And that created a lot of headaches for the various authorities and agencies involved because it wasn't in accordance with the plan So there were quite a few elements that went into the reason for the delay. But now that we have it, we have finally a guiding policy that will enable investors and developers to pursue specific projects. They have clarity on what the government's vision is in terms of things like how much LNG is going to be in the mix, how much onshore wind, how much offshore wind. So it's a really fundamental guiding document and very good news that we have at last.
0: No, indeed, I think everyone was surprised actually by the signature. I think we were expecting it by the end of the year, but I think everyone is quite excited about this one. And on the pdp itself, what are your main takeaways? Because there were a couple of drafts that was published previously. What was a point you were expecting in the approved version? And what was a point that was a bit surprising to you?
2: Yeah, good questions. I think there were 12 drafts that we saw at various points along the process. And so to be honest, having followed them, there weren't perhaps any dramatic surprises that came out in the final one. I think, as you said, the fact that it came when it did was perhaps the biggest surprise. I think there were, most people were anticipating having waited so long, and the P program in particular having just been concluded in December, that it might take a bit more time for the government to fully understand the implications of that, and given it had been so long already, maybe we'd wait till at the end of the year to get that integrated fully. So perhaps the biggest surprise was that it did come very suddenly in the end, although having been in Vietnam for a long time, you learn that, uh, that things can drag for a long time and then happen very, very suddenly. In terms of its actual content, I think perhaps one of the notable points that the language departs from prior uh, power development master plans in that there will be 6,000 and only 6,000 megawatts of offshore wind, for example, which you would have seen in previous plans. In this plan, it says there will be 6,000 megawatts of offshore wind by 2030. But if commercial conditions and technology allow, there can be more. And there are several places in the PDP8 that have this kind of flexible, living, adaptable language. And it's a very significant point because the plan is such a fundamental guiding regulation on what can be done. The result is that if something is not in a plan, it can't be done. If something needs to be adapted, the plan needs to be changed. And that change process, that amendment process itself, is very time-consuming and cumbersome and uncertain. So the fact that this plan bakes in a certain degree of flexibility from the outset and anticipates the fact that it should be well known and that technology and the circumstances will, of course, change over the course of the remaining part of this decade, then we don't necessarily need to go through a formal amendment process take advantage of those changes or to pivot, to adapt to circumstances on the ground. So that's a very significant point, And I think something that came in quite late into the draft. The other slightly surprising, certainly welcome point that we see in there was the statement around the fact that there will be no limitation on the capacity for renewable energy for self-consumption purposes. This is also a new thing for a PDPA to have no limitation rather than stating specific targets. In the context of self-consumption for renewable energy, we know that the demand is growing very, very strongly, not only amongst residential users, but also, of course, users and manufacturers in particularly who need to meet commitments of their partners overseas. So this, again, it's part flexibility and part open-endedness that's a novel and pleasantly surprising. Feature of this PDPA. And finally, of course, we expected a very solid commitment towards decarbonisation in general, and we expected to see coal continue to come down. It was pleasing to see specific statements in PDPA about how and when coal plants will be reviewed and reconsidered. And the statement was that in June 2024, which is only a year away now, there's X number of coal parts will be re-examined for their feasibility. And if they're not making progress or if they're not feasible, they will be removed. So that's a, a slightly surprising and I think a, a good development in this PDP-8.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So continue with the PDP-8. Actually, in your recent publication, you referred to the approval of the pdp 8 as the end of the beginning. So can you share with us what you believe lies ahead for Vietnam's power sector after this publication of PDPA?
2: Certainly, yes. Yeah, It was a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but having waited so long for that to be issued, whilst at the same time dealing with so many clients who are anxious to get into the next phase, we felt it was an appropriate statement. There is, as I said, the PDPA is a guiding policy document, a very important fundamental guiding policy document but still just a sort of a policy document or a plan it doesn't implement legislation it doesn't provide answers to a lot of the questions that remain in the post feed and tariff world that we live in here in Vietnam at present and in particular it doesn't address the fundamental questions about how these future projects are going to be divided up amongst provinces how those provinces will select investors to implement those projects and what the developers or the project companies will be paid for their power and and also what the contractual terms will be around the sale and purchase of that power. So these are, of course, really nitty-gritty points that are essential to any decision to commence an investment, to purchase pipelines of assets or platforms or development assets. Without this information, it's simply too difficult to assess value and to weigh up risk and value. And so nothing really can move forward. So we need all these implementing legislations to be issued. There is guidance and some clear statements from the government about what is the intention with respect. It's going to be competitive procurement of investors. There's going to be auction-based price discovery for renewable energy But the details still haven't been finally issued. And the other notable thing worth mentioning is the PDP-8 does state that the electricity law itself needs to be amended or will be amended to accommodate PDP-8 and there may be various elements to that. It's not clear yet exactly what will be amended. Maybe various elements. I expect to see at least a couple of things. One will be around further around the transmission infrastructure uh, and perhaps private sector involvement. Although it is already allowed in the electricity law, I think it needs to be expanded a little bit. And the other one is to enable and allow the DPPA program, the corporate to direct power procurement program, to operate. And that's its own topic. But it seems that the electricity law will need to be changed before that pilot program can be run. So we expect that to happen next year. And finally, the other major flagged piece of legislation is a brand new law on renewable energy that the government intends to issue. Let's put a 2020 target on that. We'll see how that goes. Again, we're not certain yet exactly what will go in that law, but I don't necessarily think it's fundamental or necessary to enable or, or... facilitate development of renewable energy, but I think it could be very valuable in that it might underpin certain targets and incentives applicable to renewable energy developers that will be banked in at a lower level. So I, I think that could be a very valuable thing.
0: That's definitely interesting, and I think everyone will be following what would be done for the implementation after the 8 I'd like to come back to solar and wind. There were two rounds of inventories, as I mentioned previously, and which have now ended and uh, impressive number of capacity being commissioned from 2017. And can you tell us, based on your experience, how you were associated with some of the projects and what was the key point that you learned helping clients developing projects in Vietnam? And also, now that, GDPR has been approved. What are you expecting next for solar and offshore wind development in Vietnam? Certainly.
2: I've really been here through the whole development phase of the renewable energy industry, I guess. Some of my earliest contacts in renewable energy here were way back in the 2012-2013. I remember speaking with Yen's renewable energy company who was contemplating developing wind projects way before there was a feed-in tariff. At that time, I was involved with in supporting the GIZ on the policy developments that were advocating for feed-in tariffs. And then, of course, around 2016 or so, we did get the first defeat in tariff, particularly for the early ones for wind were not probably deemed sufficient to spur any specific development. But the first one for solar at nine point three five cents was very significant. So that really marked about two thousand and sixteen, the kind of real birth of the, the the development, and that's where interest really started to peak. Early interest, of course, and the early actions were taken by a lot of local developers who could see the opportunity and they had local relationships to get project approval. So this early wave of our involvement in broad terms was a lot of engagement between foreign investors and domestic investors who were looking to sell projects. And there were probably too many solar projects approved initially. And these were sort of 50 megawatt projects that were approved at provincial level. There was a real frenzy at that time of investors looking to buy. Certainly we were acting buy side typically for those investors looking to buy projects from local developers. It was A bit like the real estate boom i remember back in the early 2000s here when there were people buying contracts for apartments and selling them at the back of the line around the corner it was a little bit like in the renewable energy space as well people would demand money up front to even have a discussion about buying and selling projects there were different levels of experience and expertise amongst the sellers of course but suffice to say it was a very dynamic time a lot of the international investors were getting to grips with the risk of Vietnam. And obviously, there's a lot of talk about the viability of the PPA at the same time. So it was a very exciting dynamic time. But it settled down, of course, things got developed. People started to understand and get comfortable with the PPA and EVN's and payment ability and, and these sorts of issues. And then we threw a wave of more sophisticated. Or local developers and major international companies as well started more and more to come and look at Vietnam. And they would be interested in greenfield developments and joint developments, joint greenfield developments with local investors. So the landscape changed a little bit for us helping clients manage those greenfield type developments or joint developments with local developers. And then we saw a subsequent wave of MA into established operating projects and particularly portfolios of projects. And this goes on to this day where more or less quite domestic investors who have built up portfolios have been able to market them or stakes in them on competitive basis. We've been involved right through that. And of course, the financings of, of the, of the projects. So there's a lot that could be said about that, but clearly projects needed to be financed for construction. There were a lot of refinancings that happened after construction phase and post-operation so, we've been involved in helping both lenders and borrowers do those financing and refinancings as well. So, really had the benefit of and the and pleasure to, to really see the full wheel turn on the, the feed-in tariff side of things. And now, as you say, we're of course post-feed-in tariff. There will be no more feed-in tariffs here. The, the government has signaled very clearly that it will be auction-based price discovery. We don't know the details, as I said, but that it's clear that that will happen. If we look at PDP8 and what it says about solar and onshore wind in particular, we can make some, draw some pretty clear conclusions. Number one is that on onshore solar, grid connected, large scale solar, is certainly not going to be prioritised in any way between now and 2030. It's partly due to the reasoning you mentioned earlier about the very significant number of solar that was already established and connected under the feed and tariff regime and some of the issues that is caused with the grid. But there are other reasons as well to do with land use efficiency and things that it's not going to be a high priority between now and 2030. Going back to my point about the flexibility of PDP8, it does say that there will be room to, to add additional ground-mounted solar if needed before 2030, but that remains to be seen. So on the other hand, onshore wind is very clearly... Going to be a very significant growth area between now and 2030. I think the number is that there should be an additional 17 gigawatts of onshore wind connected between now and 2030. There are about four and a half to five gigawatts connected currently. So another four or five times the current number we've developed and connected in the next seven and a half years. Significant growth action. And as I've already said, we just need to wait... There are are plenty of interested parties, plenty of well-resourced, very experienced, capable parties who are very keen to support Vietnam in that goal to get that 17.5 gig of new onshore wind. We just need to wait for those implementing regulations to
0: enable it. And another point on solar and wind, what's coming next after the feed-in tariff, was the announcement of a transitional tariff in January of this year. Essentially, there was really a rush from a lot of developers to develop projects before reaching the deadline of the feed-in tariff. And actually, many projects missed the deadline and they were set in a limbo and didn't have any offtake this year. So Vietnam has announced a framework to set a transitional tariff for these projects that didn't meet the deadline, which set a cap, and then the tariff will be negotiated with EVN. On the ground, do you have more detail about what are the implementation steps and whether there are projects now with a transitional tariff? Because I was reading recently that many projects have started to accept the offtake, etc. So it would be interesting to get an update from what you've been hearing on the ground.
2: Certainly. You're absolutely right. The so-called transitional projects have been a bit of a bugbear over the last couple of years and a wide range of different kinds of projects. So it's very difficult to treat them all the same, although the regulations really have treated them all the same. So I think in total there were about 90-odd projects that fell into this definition of transitional project. Those are projects that have signed PPAs but didn't connect to the grid before the relevant feed-in tariff deadline expired. And of those 90 projects that qualify as transitional projects, there are some that have basically done no construction works at all. And there are some that have 30 turbines in the air that are spinning around going nowhere. So there's a very wide range and equally a wide range of circumstances of the various developers. But you can imagine that a large number of them are under high financial stress as a result of building these projects, but not being able to commercialize them in any way. So it's been a very difficult topic for a lot of people. The government has, to its credit or otherwise, held a firm line throughout the whole process that it will establish a tariff regime ceiling and a floor based on the data provided by the projects around project costs, and it will establish a tariff range and then negotiate specific tariffs with each of those transitional projects. A lot of the developers were very reluctant to participate in this because the tariff range was considered very low. It's approximately 30 to 40% lower than the relevant feed-in tariff rate that applied. It was only a Vietnam dong number, no indexation to the dollar, which the feed-in tariff was. So there was wide-scale reluctance to have to participate in this regime and a lot of those projects i think felt that they would look for other sources to commercialize noted the possibility of participating in the dppa program that i mentioned the corporate uh, power procurement regime as time and as circumstances went on i think it's become clear that the electricity law have to come first for that so we're still at least probably a year away From having that regime um as a consequence slowly but surely these projects have had to engage with evn to discuss the tariff maybe 40 have commenced negotiations on a specific tariff and i think it's three or four or five have confirmed a tariff somewhere in that range at the present time they have said that it is a temporary agreement on tariff but of course it's very uncertain where it will go from here so not a great story. I feel very much for a lot of the wind developers who struggled through COVID or extraordinary stresses to get their plants developed. And some just simply unable at the last minute, a huge rush at the last minute at the end of October 2021 to get connected and failed and then sat around for two years dealing with debt and the operations and maintenance without any revenue at all. So difficult period for sure.
0: Yeah, no, definitely challenging for these developers and projects. And you mentioned about the DPPA, the direct PPA program, which was one gigawatt program allow corporate to offtake uh, directly from projects and with the signature of the CFD. Could you describe the main feature of this program and whether you have hear of any recent developments?
2: Yeah, it's has It's an indirect, static direct uh, PPA schemes. It's not a direct wire, despite the name. That has been used here. The regime is that the generator would sell into the wholesale market at effectively whatever the relevant spot price is. The power, relevant power consumer would still buy power from its regular retail provider at regular retail rates, but the consumer and the generator would enter into a CFD agreeing a strike price. And then, obviously, depending on where the retail price is, they will either pay the generator or vice versa. That There have been tweaks to that system over the years. It has been a program that has been under development for for a number of years. For example, initially, it was thought that the consumer would pay the wholesale price to the retailer rather than the regular retail price, and the balancing would happen above that, but it was concluded that was too difficult to put in place, and so the consumer will still pay the regular retail price for power. There are some tweaks to it, but fundamentally there hasn't been any dramatic progress on it for a a year or more. There have been various drafts put out into the public, not very different from each other apart from those tweaks I mentioned, but no one who has really taken responsibility and decided this needs to happen, it needs to happen now. So where we've ended up as a result is that the demand for this kind of activity or this kind of program has ballooned dramatically from where it was when it was conceived five or six years ago and first under discussion. And though there was plenty of demand for it. One of the questions is whether the one gigawatt cap for the pilot is appropriate anymore, or indeed whether even it's appropriate to have a pilot at all and just jump into the, uh, the implementation of it. Those are questions that are still undetermined. Um, and as I mentioned, the electricity law is going to have to change to allow it. The primary reason for that change needing to be made is to allow the, the parties involved to collect effectively, it's not a wheeling fee because they're not truly wheeling the electricity directly, but to collect a fee for participating in the DPPA regime. And it, it was felt that the, the law itself needed to change to allow that so at the moment, my understanding is that is basically the last thing holding up the logistics sort of fee- legal feasibility of the program. Then it just needs someone to really champion and sign off on it. I hope that will be at the prime ministerial level. I hope that will happen very soon after the electricity law. And my personal hope is that it is not limited to a one gigawatt initially, but that also remains to be seen.
0: Yeah. And hopefully we'll be positively surprised, like for the PDP eight and uh, it will be approved in the next month. So let's see. One point I want to come back on and you mentioned it a couple of times, from a bankability perspective. Vietnam is a really challenging country because essentially the PPA templates has many issues that does not really allow the international project finance standard and project finance for the projects. There's issues of what the treatment of containment, changing law, uh, termination, political force measure, etc. Could you just describe the key bankality issues and for us just to understand what are the challenges that the banks are usually facing to finance renewable projects in Vietnam?
2: Certainly. I think you've already touched on the main ones. We typically say there are five or six main bankability issues with the previous feed and tariff renewable energy PPA and wind and solar ones. And there are some slight variations, but fundamentally the same issues. And you've hit on some of them. The main one, of course, is the curtailment issue. There's no take or pay. The curtailment right of the buyer is very wide in practice and there's no compensation for curtailment. And that has clearly been the largest and most significant commercial issue that many renewable energies projects have faced over the recent years. I don't think there are any official statistics released to the public, but certainly anecdotally, there there have been times when some of the solar plants have been curtailed up to 80% for several months on end, or weeks on end at least. The wind sector has faced less curtailment, but nevertheless, the point is that the PPA allows curtailment based on, effectively, just a need. With no compensation that's a major issue the other major ones are the change in law that the ppa doesn't allow any protection for change in law so if law is changed to change the tariff because the tariff for the feed-in tariff is established at a decree or a decision level of the government that can be changed and that there's no protection baked into the contractual agreement to protect the seller against that so ostensibly the feed in tariffs could be reduced at some time during the 20 year term of the PPA or other changes in law, for example, environmentally related that could resolve additional capex or whatever for the developers. That's another key issue that is often highlighted as a facilitative international finance. The one is the lender step in rights. The PPA is completely silent on the ability of the lenders to step into projects, to rescue them if need be in the case of financial distress. And similarly, there's the assignment of the PPA to lenders, question marks over whether EVN would consent to that and the circumstances in which that could happen. That's another key bankability feature of the PPA. Termination payments connected with other issues such as the political force majeure that you mentioned, the PPA doesn't provide for any valuable termination payments in case of compensation. It does allow a general right at law to claim compensation for damage caused in certain circumstances, but whether that extends to force majeure is questionable. And in any case, the ability to really pursue that right, practically speaking, is very limited. That is seen as another major weakness. If the buyer simply breaches the agreement, the seller wants to terminate, its rights are effectively quite limited. So that's a key issue. Yeah, and finally, yeah. perhaps the dispute resolution issue is pointed to as being very significant in these PPAs, these commercial agreements, and an option for parties to resort to independent, neutral grounds for dispute resolution. I mean, the classic example would, of course, be arbitration whether abroad or even in Vietnam, would be the preferred solution. But these PPA templates have terms that require the parties to go through a statutory dispute resolution process that involves the regulator itself. There are question marks about the suitability of that from an independence and um, impartial kind of point of view. So those are the main issues that are typically pointed to as being a bankability or certainly not up to international standard and or at least will not facilitate or support project finance, especially not project finance, which is the target, of course, and the ideal solution in terms of efficiency for capital and the cost of the project
0: yeah, definitely PPA has always been a key challenge to product finance project finance these projects. And one thing I was hearing lately was that there were some discussion about abandoning the USD indexation in the next round of PPAs. I don't know if you've heard anything about that.
2: It's certainly been the preferred position of the government. Transitional tariff range that they issued as it does not have any US dollar indexation. We still await the final details on the subsequent regime, but it's certainly been that the government would like to avoid having to do that for its own reasons. Clearly they will be receiving and have received the message that would be a very dangerous or dramatic step with respect to international financing, the places a very significant risk on the borrower that needs to be, and the lender that needs to be addressed through some of the means and this all goes to the ultimate cost of the projects and the cost of capital. And of course, it all ultimately falls to the bottom line and the cost of electricity as well. So we're in a very dynamic period right now where the government is wrestling with its ideal scenario where it wouldn't have to index cost to a US dollar, but a clear imperative and now a specific plan to develop certain gigawatts of assets before a certain period of time. The domestic capital market cannot afford to finance all of that capacity, there will have to be a substantial portion that comes from foreign sources and anywhere it might be cheaper and more efficient to use those foreign sources. But of course, as all these issues allude to, the environment has to be right and it has to be efficient to make it work. So the answer to your question is, I don't know where that is going to end up. I know that the government would like to adopt a position where there will be no indexation, whether that is a functional reality. When push comes to shove, we will need to see. And it may be that there are certain large-scale projects that are able to negotiate different terms, and the smaller-scale projects will be forced to accept different terms. We will have to see.
0: And one sector where I think we'll probably need a lot of international finance is offshore wind. So in the PDPA, there's 6 gigawatt offshore wind capacity targets by 2030. However, in Vietnam right now, the tariff and the allocation mechanism and the permit process have still yet to be clarified. What is your view on this Offshore Wind goal and what do you think should be the step to be taken for Vietnam to achieve this six gigawatt goal?
2: I am very excited about this goal. We have a lot of great Offshore Wind clients and so much interest in the sector. We love the complexity of the projects. I think they're fascinating. I really believe in the future of the offshore wind market for Vietnam, but clearly there are very significant challenges, especially in this decade, to get these projects up and running. As you alluded, they are novel projects to Vietnam. They're extremely capital intensive. They're very complicated engineering tasks. And all of these factors make it a, a very challenging environment, particularly when you add a layer on the top, the need for a substantial amount of private finance to come in from overseas. So, what I think Vietnam is clear on what it needs to do from a regulatory perspective. It needs to establish clarity around the site survey rules and the completion of a marine spatial plan for the country so it can finally decide exactly where these offshore wind projects are going to go they're going to be connected, all these sorts of things, and allow the investors to survey and spend the money up front to do the surveys necessary with confidence that there's a pathway for them to be selected to do the project later on. These are all sort of regulatory steps, fundamental in the very near future. But there's so much more complexity to it: the supply chain for the industry, the onshore infrastructure needed to facilitate the ships and the engineering of the whole thing. The mere availability of the turbines globally is an issue that needs to be considered, and that's before you get to any of the commercial and contractual terms and the payment terms for how these things are going to work. Vietnam has a track record of project finance, internationally project finance, thermal power plants. There are a number of great examples, mainly BOT projects. I think Vietnam really needs to look at those projects and really treat these offshore wind projects in their own bucket, very specialized bucket, and give them some of the frameworks that the previous thermal plants have done. The the government has signaled that is not the intention, that the intention is that these be done as IPP projects outside of BOT frameworks or similar and without government guarantees and things of this nature. But I really don't think that is a reality, especially given the huge sums of capital and the complexity for these things. These investors won't be able to commit as necessary to make that 2030 target a, a reality if they don't get clear answers on specific topics in SAP. And I hope that will happen. I really do. But I think that six thousand megawatt target by 2030 will be a challenge. Thereafter, I'm very, very confident that the market and the operating environment will continue to develop pace, and I'm sure we'll see rapid growth. It's just really what's going to happen in the next seven half years that is a little bit uncertain for me
1: to wrap up how do you see the power market develop in vietnam over the next five years and what do you think are the most promising opportunities in vietnam for the developers it's
0: going to
2: be based on the demand growth, right? So the demand projections for power growth and the generation of Vietnam basically needs to double its existing capacity between now and 2030. I spent 20 odd years at least to build up the current 79 gigawatts power. It has to double that in the next seven and a half years. And that's to keep up with demand and to keep up with the growth projections of the country, which I think are sound in and of themselves. So I think it's all predicated on that macro picture. You know, we need these new assets the country needs them, the investors need them, and there is plenty of willing participants sponsors and investors and financiers as well we just need to work through the the, the terms or develop the foundation for that to happen first of all what i see in the next five years is huge growth and generation capacity so there's a lot of development a lot of financing that needs to be done looking at where it's going to come from offshore wind in the next few years is going to be a very hot Active sector, as in the CNI self consumption rooftop type stuff. And there are question marks around whether that will be allowed to not necessarily just be on rooftop, but can be off rooftop, larger than one megawatt capacity, which is the current limit. That will be a very exciting area to watch. And related to that is the DPPA program. There are a number of very significant power users here. They have made commitments, their supply chains have commitments that they need to meet, and they'll be pushing very, very hard to develop that and then move very aggressively to implement it. So that's a very exciting area to watch as well
0: for me.
1: Thank you, Giles.
0: That's my pleasure.